Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by David Pepper, the former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. Before that, he served as a member of the Hamilton County, Ohio Board of Commissioners and as a councilman for the city of Cincinnati. David is the author of the new book, Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines, which you can find at your fine bookstore or Amazon. David Pepper, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, David, today I want to talk about what's next for places like Texas and Florida, as well as look ahead to 2022 and 2024. But first, I want to hear about your book, Laboratories of Autocracy, which obviously is a take on Justice Brandeis, I believe, right? So that the states are laboratories of democracy. And obviously this has been turned on its head. So let's talk a little bit about it. So the book is really about what's going on at the state level, gubernatorial, statewide races, legislative races, maybe sometimes ballot measures, although I don't know if you really get into that. And that the real threat to our democracy is not Marjorie Taylor Greene or Gates or Boebert or Jordan or even the big lie. It's this sort of under the radar, anonymous sort of ALEC funding of conservative candidates you know, for probably decades, right, at the local state level, which has enabled so much policy change. And we'll talk about, as I said, Texas and Florida in a minute. But take us through a little bit about how you wrote the book and, you know, what you want some of our listeners to really get out of it. If you had told me in January that I was going to actually write a book, I would have said, no, I'm not doing that. But by the spring, I just continue to watch our country ignore what I believe is the deepest threat to our democracy that is taking place every day and is more of a threat, as we said to Marjorie Taylor Greene, I said on a prior interview, how many laws has Marjorie Taylor Greene passed? Zero. She's not even on a committee. Exactly. And we should watch her. She's dangerous in some ways. And what some of these folks did on January 6th is really scary. But the bigger danger is that there are hundreds of people just like her at state houses. And they are passing laws. And too often, no one's even paying any attention. But here's the worst part. Even when we do pay attention, we have like a multi-day freak out and we have a boycott and often we have a lawsuit. And then we move on instead of ever saying to ourselves, well, what the hell is going on in these state houses and how do we stop it? And the truth is, whether you look at it as a matter of history or I'm a father of a seven-year-old or the matter of a basic soccer game. If one team is always on offense, relentlessly attacking democracy, and the other team only plays defense and wins sometimes but loses sometimes, the one team on offense is going to win. And what never is happening these days, we are taking as a given that Texas or Ohio or Florida, these legislatures, will just keep doing what they're doing. And we're never saying to ourselves, how do we actually get in there to stop it? Because if we don't stop it, if we don't go on offense, they are going to win. And they are winning already because of it. And so, you know, they're playing this long game. They're playing a game where they never stop. And 
we sort of just play defense and we play a short game. And it's accelerating rapidly. The downward spiral is going downhill very quickly. We're seeing it sort of in extremes right now. So, as I mentioned, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the Republican Governors Association, the Republican Attorneys General Association. I've set up some of these events in the past. I've attended many of them in the past, right? The biggest players from every office come, right? The more money you pay, the more access you get. But no one ever didn't show up, right? Like all the big players, whether or not they were donors, whether or not they were corporations, staff, lobbyists, they were all there. And it's almost a circuit, right? It would always be someplace in San Diego or Florida, you know, someplace that everybody wanted to go anyway. And so in that environment, you know, having lived through it, you can almost take it as like, well, it's all fine, right? Like, look how collegial everybody is. But to your point, what happens, and this is one thing I want to get to a little bit later on, is that you can make an argument that like, like the federal government, dislike the federal government, like Congress, dislike Congress. There are tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people for whom federal aid or whatever really matters. But on a day-to-day basis, governors and state legislatures actually impact people's daily lives, not unlike a mayor, right? The things they do, the things they vote on really take into account people's lives. And from your perspective too, it's not just a matter of the legislation that they pass or they propose or the things they say, but also now, you know, we're now just coming to the end of a redistricting cycle. Republicans have always been ruthless using their scalpels to slice up these districts to improve their own standing, which it makes that much more difficult to get them out of office. The second chapter of my book is titled, With Great Power Comes Great Anonymity, the old Spider-Man line. These state houses are very powerful, and no one knows it. No one even knows who their state rep is. These are the most anonymous people in politics, more so than your mayor or your council member. And I go through examples of that in Ohio, where as a council member, I got a lot more attention than the state rep. But these people under the U.S. Constitution and under state law, they draw the district lines. They set the rules for elections. They determine how presidential electors are granted, let alone massive you know, control over regulation, the health care, you name it, but no one knows it. So the, what's happened is, and you mentioned Alec, they're so anonymous, and anonymity in politics is in the end a dangerous thing. It means there's no accountability. No one is paying attention. And let's forget Alec for a second. Within states, there's already a problem of corruption in capital cities and state houses because of this. So I would say the Achilles heel of American governance is the state house. Well, guess what? Alec figured it out before everyone else, and they took advantage of that Achilles heel, and they figured out, forget Congress, let them be a sideshow. If you want to get things done, things that aren't popular, things which, if there were accountability, wouldn't last very long, go to your state house. That's where it's going to happen. And the meetings and everything you describe. It's basically the privatization of legislating. I mean, they're flying people all over the country and on these joint groups like business people are literally playing the role of joint legislator. And then the legislators are flying back to their home state houses and actually putting these things into place. I mean, it's as if the private members who are paying big money to be at the same table as the legislators, it's as if they're elected too, but they're not. They're just paying in. So we have a basic problem with state houses that in states like Ohio are already corrupted, are making huge mess of public outcomes on almost every issue. And then it's been weaponized across the country by national groups who figured out, get it done through state houses, forget Congress, you'll never get it done there. And that's, we've now been seeing that for at least a decade. 
and gerrymandering is a huge part of it. The lack of accountability has essentially, and this is going to sound dramatic, but I think it's the case, most of these state houses are no longer functioning viable democracies. I mean, these are people completely insulated from the voters. And what I think people who even gerrymandered 10 years ago, Carl Rowe, for example, didn't appreciate was how warped things become when you have an entire generation of people who essentially are in power without any connection to democracy and who know that democracy would mean the end of their power. And they also are the people who write the rules of that democracy. How's that going to turn out? They're going to write the rules so they don't ever face the voters. And we're about to enter, I'm afraid, our second generation of this very broken system in state after state after state. It'd be bad enough for states themselves, like Ohio, which we're seeing public outcomes collapse in Ohio. But it's even worse that these people also, in the end, control so much of national politics. Let me take this to a human level. Does the corruption beget more corruptible or already corrupted individuals to run for office because they see it not as a public service, but as a route to wealth, fame, prominence, whatever? In a gerrymandered world, the path to power is sort of a connected insider. In a normal sort of healthy democratic world, it's someone who sort of knows they have to stand to the public, have to lay out issues, will be held accountable for public outcomes. A gerrymandered rigged world is someone who literally doesn't have to be a good candidate. I mean, we have candidates all over Ohio in office, in Congress, who if you and I saw them would think they should never run for office. They're not meant for it. They don't have the skills for it. They're in office for the rest of their lives under the system. So it rewards and I think entices this insider candidate who in any normal world of politics, most of these folks, I don't think would even run for office in the first place. They wouldn't succeed. Well, and you have more experience at the state level than I do, but certainly, you know, I know too, what you're talking about too, is that, you know, how many staffers of a member run? How many chiefs of staff of a member run for that seat? And to your point, they already know how it's wired, right? They know how to make it work to their best advantage. So it's like, no, you know, Kevin McCarthy, just again, to make it federal for just a sec, but to continue the point, works for Bill Thomas, you know, legendary member of Congress from Bakersfield for several years, learns the tricks of the trade, learns how everything works. Now he runs for office and he's already baked into the cake. There's not going to be a Kevin McCarthy airport in Bakersfield anytime soon. And frankly, McCarthy doesn't care. And a lot of these people, if they weren't appointed at first, and many are, they faced one primary at one moment in their political life in a state house, maybe won six or 7,000 votes. That's the last time they'll ever think about the voters because they're guaranteed election every year since. And I go through examples of races in Ohio. And the point of my book is to tell this story very up close because it gets lost, I think, among all the other stuff. But I tell it up close to try and get into real lives and real stories so people see how bad it is. We've had candidates run in the last couple of years on the Democratic side. You know, one was a woman who basically was goose from Top Gun. That's the seat she flew in in F-14s and F-16s. And she was flying doing on training during 9-11. She served in over Afghanistan and Iraq and landed on multiple aircraft carriers, running against someone who has no even close to that kind of public service, no chance in the world of winning. We have other people just like that, you know, pilots and veterans and others. People say, well, you got to run better candidates. The candidates have not been the problem. I've seen matchups where the Democrat was the far superior candidate in every way, even raised more money, loses by 20 points against someone 
like Kevin McCarthy, who basically came up through this internal past. And by the way, over time, those really good potential public servants are self-selecting out of running. So it gets even worse over time. You know, we have here like the Josh Mandels, or you see the Hollies. It's changing who thinks running for office is something worth doing. When over and over again, you know, an insider path is rewarded and a broader experience around public service is irrelevant to winning. Or it is used against you. You know, it's fascinating too, David. I want to ask you this. You know, Republicans love to run as the outsider or the business person. I'm going to take my experience, quote unquote, to Washington or to Columbus or to Austin or wherever it is. Now, of course, once they get elected, they're part of that system. But now there's almost this like performative, like, I'm not going to get anything done because like burn the whole damn thing down. I mean, how do you contend, I guess, with a party to your point of when the let's just use the flight officer you're discussing who's trying to do the right thing for the right reasons, but it's the performative asshole that's going to get elected? You know, how do you start to fight back against that? Because, you know, we know something a little bit about bare knuckle tactics. We're not afraid to deploy them. We have. We will. But how do you take the people who want to believe that not only are they running for the right reasons, but they're running the right race in a way they can feel good about when feeling good about might get you knifed? I think we have to redefine all of this into a much longer game for democracy. A really good candidate may not win the first time. It's very hard to win the first time in a gerrymandered district. We often, when that race is over, we walk away as if like they didn't win. We don't really admire them. No, they're actually taking on a gerrymandered district is more patriotic in many cases than taking on the one that you think you're going to win. We've had these incredible veterans step up and take them on. And as you said, get attacked nonstop when, again, their record of service to the country like far eclipses their opponent. I think we have to start thinking long game. And I put in this book, you know, everything is additive. Every good campaign, every door knock, every registered voter, like keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. We had three people run for a state house seat in 16. They lost. They ran again the next cycle. Three of them won. Those were part of the six. We had for the first time in years, 99 people run for the state house in 2018. It was the first time we flipped any districts in 18. We flipped six of them. So that doesn't happen if you treat everything as sort of a one-shot deal, one moment, and if you lose, that's the end. You know, Stacey Abrams in Georgia didn't win in 18, but registered enough voters, fired folks up, kept going, kept going, kept going. Georgia turns blue in 20. You know, you look at people like John Lewis and women suffragists who saw this as a long game and kept fighting. We have to adjust our definition of success as part of a long game, and that includes recruiting heavy to get people to run, you know, celebrating their run the day they start. You know, we literally have far too many uncontested seats all around this country. What these gerrymandered, rigged politicians want is a monopoly on the conversation. The minute you challenge somebody, you change the dynamic in that district. You start to build the long-term case to change things. And so we need to recruit better. And if they don't win, keep them around, keep fighting with them. If they're good at it, keep running. We need a broader support network of people who take on these tough races because what they want, they want to squeeze the life out of all these districts so no one ever challenges them. And that's when they're guaranteed to win. Well, let me ask you this, because some of this, too, as you know, is the numbers game. You are going to find even in a gerrymandered district once in a while, you know, there's going to be somebody who's just so completely awful. The voters are like, I don't care what you believe in. I hate you. (laughs) 
right? I'm not having anything to do with you. Or on the flip side, you find a really compelling candidate. But if you only try and fight in the exact number of seats that you need, you have no margin for error whatsoever. And most of these incumbents in gerrymandered districts are deathly afraid of a race at all. They're very sensitive. They're in capital cities where they're told they're doing a wonderful job, even when their public outcomes are cratering. So you never know who's going to be a bad incumbent. Corruption is endemic to all this. If you have a system with no accountability, you're going to have corruption. So you never know which of these people is going to turn out to have some sting that catches it on tape being corrupt. You definitely want to have a candidate challenging them, knowing that some of them will go down with problems unless you don't have a challenger. So, And the other one is, You want the head of the Republican Caucus of Ohio to have to think about defending in, you know, many, many districts as opposed to just six where he gets to only attack the six he's worried about. Again, the reason we picked up six in a gerrymandered map, flip six in 2018, one reason was we contested all 99. And this is what they do when they're on their game. They are pushing everywhere, knowing they won't win everywhere, but they're winning some places. And it's tough to ask people to run in very difficult districts. That was part of what I had to do. You got to redefine the run for them and say, listen, this is a bigger picture. When you step up, you know the old Teddy Roosevelt quote about the man or woman in the arena? We often talk about that like the arena is once you've won. The politicians think, oh, they're talking about me because I'm in Congress. And this. No, if you're running in a state house district that's gerrymandered against you, you're in the arena. You are a champion of democracy. And all of us need to take these people and say, good for you. We're lifting you up. You're doing the hardest thing in the world there is to do. And because you're doing it, you're already making a difference. We have to sort of treat that uphill battle as a real sort of step and strike for democracy. Let me take the state house and mix it with democracy and what we've seen so far here in 2021, which is in the wake of 2020 in the big lie in January 6th, Republican controlled states started to use this whole idea of election security, which is bullshit as a reason why they were going to institute far more stringent voting regulations in some cases, like in Texas, right? It's now the 50th most difficult state to participate in. You see this in Texas, you see it in Florida, you've seen it in Georgia and Iowa. I mean, what we call this is, and it's probably a little too narrow for you, but from our perspective, this is sort of Trumpism in action, which is to your point, I went to high school and college in Texas. I worked for George W. Bush down there. Greg Abbott is the governor, the very conservative lieutenant governor who basically always uses veiled threats against Abbott to continue to move him to the right. And the legislature is scared to death of their conservative activists. So they do this thing. It's SB1 on voting. It's SB8 on abortion. If you're 18, you can buy a gun without a permit, just sort of stick it in your pocket and walk around. You know, they've been crazy on mask mandates and vaccines. So there's the democracy piece. But how do you stop that flywheel of one party in control? where they're just sort of knocking down all these barriers to maintaining their own authority. 21 is the growing acceleration of it, but they're doing very similar what they did after 10. Ohio's a good example of this, and it's true in Texas and these other states. Georgia's a good example. They are pinpointing the exact modes of voting that they think are the greatest risk to them or that costs them the election, and they target those. So Republicans in Ohio were furious that Obama turned the state blue in 08. And they were doubly furious that the coalition that elected Obama also flipped the Ohio State House to be in Democratic control despite a gerrymander. So what turned Ohio blue? A whole lot of African-Americans voting in our larger counties, young people voting, 
and a new vote law that had been bipartisan that allowed early voting. What did Republicans do after 2010? They went after each part of that coalition. You know, they went after young voters, African-American voters, early voting. That's what's happening after 20. You know, forget this election security. Why did they lose in part? Because a lot of people chose to vote by drop boxes in a place like Georgia. So you target the drop boxes. They're going after each of the mechanisms that they think most cost them votes and get rid of them, even though there's no proof whatsoever of fraud or corruption. But they don't actually even try like they did before and make a case that there's any fraud that happened because there wasn't. There were no issues with drop boxes, but they get rid of them. So it's a very pinpointed response. Like, why did we lose? How do we stop that from happening again? To fight it, I do think, and history is clear on this, and I've been reading a lot of this lately, despite efforts to not have us look at our history, without a strong federal response to state-level attacks on democracy, those state-level attacks succeed. That's why Jim Crow came in, because the federal government stopped pushing back. There needs to be federal protection on both voting rights and gerrymandering in the near future. It's too much to ask people to sort of politically rally around voter suppression. I mean, at some point, it's too much. You can't ask people to counter brutal laws with action. I mean, A, even if they succeed or somewhat succeed, the energy spent on fighting the suppression is diverting resources and going out and winning over swing voters, for example. It doesn't work. So the federal government has to step up. And if you look at our history, there's no way to justify the filibuster getting in the way of protecting democracy. I mean, the founders understood and they wrote this in the Constitution is a phrase that the federal government shall guarantee a Republican form of government in every state. And by Republican form, they meant democracy. The people's will should be sovereign. They wrote that because they worried that, as we've said, we're giving these states a lot of power. If they're not democratic, that could be real trouble for the country. So they placed on Congress a constitutional duty to protect democracy at the state level. The idea that the filibuster should somehow get in the way of this constitutional language just makes no sense. Why do you think that is, though? If enough smart, dedicated people believe that the filibuster needs to go, why isn't it gone? I think Democrats get bullied. And you would agree with this more than anybody. If there's one lesson to be learned in the Trump era is stand up to bullies. You never win giving in to bullies. And I hate to say this, you know, Rob Portman's learned that lesson. Others have learned that lesson. If you get bullied and you don't stand up, then they've got you because they know they can bully you again and again. And what's happened with the filibuster? Well, if we do it, then if he ever wins, he'll do it. So you never do anything. And by the way, they end up doing it anyway. On issues like voting rights, I mean, whatever you think about the filibuster broadly, you can have debates all day. When should it apply? When it comes to protecting democracy itself, the filibuster should not be an obstacle. And here's another reason for that. The battle over democracy is happening at multiple levels. At the state level, the concern about the filibuster is, well, the minority viewpoint must be respected. Fine. If it were being respected at the state level, then I'd say respect at the federal level. But at the state level right now, did Texas hold up their legislation waiting for Texas Democrats to, you know, 10 of them to agree? They don't give a whiff about the minority view. They are getting these bills sent in from the Heritage Foundation. It's not even about what the state thinks, and they admit it. So the idea that at the state level, they can run over the minority and not get one vote to attack democracy, but at the federal level, somehow we need to convince 10 people 
from the side that's attacking democracy to vote to protect democracy or we can't do it. It's asymmetric warfare. It's a total losing strategy to let them attack at the level where they can crush democracy and at the level that is there to protect democracy, where the founders have said you have a duty to do so. We sit around and wait for 10 people who are on the other side to say, yeah, we're with you. We don't like what's happening. It doesn't make sense from a historical standpoint. If you read the Constitution, it makes no sense. And from a practical sense of this is a multi-layered battle. I think of it as in the states, they're shooting democracy from a very high ground down. They've got all the advantage and they don't wait for one Democrat to vote for it. But then we get to the Senate and we're saying we somehow need to come together. Mitch McConnell must be laughing when he sees this asymmetry playing out. Well, we like to say that Democrats play chess and Republicans eat the pieces. Yeah. And it's happening on this filibuster voting rights. And again, I wrote this book because I'm alarmed and I hope people read it because I think more so than you can get through, you know, one article. The book is a little shocking when it talks about how just bad things are in these state houses. It's more shocking than even most insiders realize. But the lesson is very clear. We are not all that different from where things stood in the late 1800s when Jim Crow was about to start. If there is not a hard federal pushback that protects rights in states, the side that is relentlessly attacking democracy will succeed. We have a window right now where we can do it. And if we let that window close by next November and they haven't passed robust protection, I'm afraid the side attacking democracy, just like has happened in other countries and just like it happened in our own country, will succeed. It's that dire. I mean, here's what we've seen, too. And just to go back on the historical context, which is if you use that in the history of, let's say, modern warfare, right? Bad countries do bad things. They attack good people. They win. And it takes democracy a while to get off the schneid because liberal democracies, by definition, are not the aggressor typically, don't want to be seen as the aggressor because of their own sort of feeling about themselves. But now when you bring that back home, you know, look, I understand you're a Democrat. I used to be a Republican. But you have to understand it's also a cultural thing from the moment even when I came up right in Washington, D.C., amongst moderate Republicans because they'd been in the minority for so long in Congress. The idea was just win. If you can win, you win, because you know what? Voters won't remember the campaign. They won't. They're not going to blame you two years from now for a tactic you utilized 24 months ago. They're just not going to remember it. But how do you say to your friends, guys, the game that you're playing doesn't exist anymore? It's over. How do we do that in a way that both gets them to understand, gets them to take a deep breath and say, I know, and gets them to lock arms with everybody, David, who's in this fight to march forward? When Jim Crow was almost there, all the people against it started fighting about other things. They couldn't agree on foreign policy or economics. They started cutting deal with some of the Southern segregationists. That was it. If you don't unify for democracy, the side attacking democracy will divide and conquer in a heartbeat. So I've tried to do my best including in who I'm sending this book to, to say, listen, we can battle a lot of issues. Have at it. Fair game. But man, if we let those battles keep us from uniting for democracy, we will lose. You know, back to what I said earlier about abysmal public outcomes. If you're corrupt, it basically means you're taking public assets and giving it to private players. And in Ohio, the best example of that is our public schools are cratering because they were giving away massive amounts of public school money to for-profit charter school online scams, not non-profit charters, but for-profit scams who had terrible results and turned out they weren't even taking attendance, even though they get money 
for every student they'd claim. It was a total scam. Well, you know what you do with that? You don't run a campaign screaming about corruption or partisan. You say, like the governor of Kansas now, a Democrat, said, I'm running to save our public schools. Run on the poor public outcomes because those are the things that actually affect people in every single community. So I think sometimes it's be tough, but then be smart enough to not look like you're super partisan, like you're just calling their side names. Also, get back to some first principles about what people care about. That's why I think Whitmer, she talked about the roads. Kansas, she could have talked about Chris Kobach's views on voter suppression and called Sam Brownback every name. The governor now, she ran on, you remember how the cuts there had schools down to four days a week? Like She ran on save our public schools. And I think Democrats need to be tough, but smart to not take the bait on every single issue, but get back to things that every voter is actually thinking about and that affects those voters. Well, and so to go back to Texas, for example, you know, I think a lot of our listeners remember back this past winter, the Texas power grid went down. Why is that even possible? Because energy companies said, we don't want to be attached to the eastern grid or the western grid because we want to be able to deregulate as much as possible. They do that. All of the you know backup systems that would come with being tied into the larger grid aren't in place. It all cascades. People die. They freeze to death. Days, weeks without water or electricity. You know the legislature, which is meeting, you know at the time, said we have to do something. We have to do something. It's going to be a massive investment. Suddenly that disappears. Now it's going to be a committee to study the issue. And then David, they basically write a billion dollar check to the electric companies or the utilities you know, to pay them back for all of the money that they weren't able to charge when the spot price of electricity went through the roof. This is the story in all these states. When you have pay to play, when you have corruption, whether it's illegal bribery or just pay to play everywhere, the public outcomes are suffering and the average citizen is paying the price through the results they're getting or higher fees or taxes. And my point is that when you just run around and scream corruption, which we could all do, people think everyone's corrupt at this point. So talk about the outcome that they're mad about. And sometimes, you know, I think we had a close race for governor in Ohio in 18. I think in hindsight, if our governor candidate had leaned in more, just like Kansas, not about corruption. And he, he ran on some federal health care issues that I think were a little bit of a trap because it nationalized a race that could have been in state. He should have run on schools failing, just like someone running for governor there should talk about that energy crisis and how it affects people. Because part and parcel with the current corrupted governments we have in states across this country are really poor results. I mean, I, I did a video the other day. Another example. Small towns in Ohio are cratering. Almost every one of them is represented by a Republican. But there's no infrastructure. There's no nothing. In fact, they're taking money from these towns to give out tax cuts. And no one's made the connection. One of the stories I tell in my book, and this is how you, you want to tease out how bad this is, one town right on the river, about 40 miles from where I am right now, it's a ghost town. Like literally every building is empty. And the name of the town is Manchester, Ohio. The group of citizens, as it cratered, had a meeting. They actually figured out who their state senator is, which most people don't even know. They had a meeting. And after years of this guy voting against his own town's interest, they asked him, what are you going to do? And his answer was, sometimes you just got to move. Here he is, the elected official. In a normal world of democracy, they would get to vote him out of office. In a world of gerrymandering, not only is he failing, but he's so comfortable in his seat, he tells them to leave. 
And there's a direct connection between a lack of democracy and the cratering of public outcomes, whether it be energy, schools, the state of small towns, you name it. They go together because there's no incentive left at the state-level politics, the state houses in particular. There's no incentive left to deliver good public outcomes. Nothing about getting reelected, and I put that in quotes almost, in the state house has anything to do with public outcomes, with that energy grid, with the school system. It has everything to do, you're hanging out with private players in boardrooms all over the country, doing what they want you to do, then you get reelected, you be as extreme as possible so you don't have a primary, and that's it. And if your town is falling apart, if your schools are falling apart, it doesn't really cost you anything. And some people go to these places to do real public service, and I may disagree on them on things, but most people, these institutional incentives that are now in every state, who cares about public outcomes, keep the private people happy, those are clearly dominating these institutions to the point where we are seeing, again, not just partisan results you may not agree with, but it's very hard to argue with the actual quality of governance we're seeing, whether you look at it through your energy crisis, schools here, small towns here. It's just a failed system. Now, the Koch brothers may like it because the money's getting you know, siphoned to them, the public, if you present it for what it is, should be pretty outraged that state after state after state is basically failing them. So let me ask you this. Let me take that sense of invulnerability that these members have in a place like Ohio, potentially a place like Texas, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. As we look to the future, we look forward to next year. We hadn't really been thinking about governor's races that much. But, you know, if you have so many of these members of the legislature in Arizona or wherever, you know, now you have a let's call it a radical Republican governor and a legislature willing to do whatever. Like, how can we even be sure that when the time comes to, let's say, count electoral votes or send electors to Washington, D.C., that they're not going to screw around with it? I mean, I hate to say it. We can't be that Eastman memo. You don't think that some form of that memo is going to be in every state house hands in the coming years? Well, he already said he's already met with 300 state legislators about it. Exactly. And the scary part about that is January 6th looked inappropriate, right? The average person is like, you can't do that. You can't storm in that building. Well, legislating in a state house level, whatever the topic feels more legitimate. Like people look, oh, well, they're lawmakers. They follow the rules. Like the scary part about these state house politicians is it leaves a veneer of legitimacy that you don't see when you have January 6th. And that's when, if you look around the world, it's called competitive autocracy. It looks and feels like a real democratic system. The results are predetermined. It doesn't matter what the voters do, but because they through, go through an exercise of elections, it looks legitimate. And my worry is, with more time to prepare, that type of memo will be in the hands of these state legislators to be you know, ready for 24. By the way, you mentioned Michigan and Wisconsin. Here's how unaccountable these places are. The voters of Michigan and Wisconsin, a majority voted for Democrats for their state houses in 2018. And despite that, both states have strong majorities for Republicans in the state house. It's so gerrymandered that the broad popular will of the people is being flipped in the way these districts are drawn. Another thing that's happened and this is why I think we're narrow casting the attack on democracy. It's not just about voting rights. It's much broader. You know, referenda passed in 18 and 20, and we're seeing this now in Ohio, overwhelming referenda, changing state constitutions. These legislatures are literally just ignoring 
voters' approval at these referenda. Right now, we have a new thing in place in Ohio that's supposed to stop partisan gerrymandering. Legislature's running right over it. My hope is we win at court. But Missouri did the same thing on Medicaid expansion, for example. Whether it's winning a majority of state house seats, even when they're a minority of the voters, running over governors trying to get rid of their powers when they've won, the other side won. You know, the gerrymandering was terrible in 11. They did some terrible things for five years. But it was in 16 and 18 when you started to see, wow, when they don't win statewide, they immediately go to war with the result of that election by taking away powers of the North Carolina governor, for example. And so after 20, does it surprise you they're going after Secretary of State or Supreme Courts of states? No, it's exactly what they did in 1618. And because they're gerrymandered, here's the thing, they never face accountability for any of it. And that's why they keep going. And the reason I call the book Laboratories, I mean, Brandeis was right. There can be laboratories for good, but every time they make a mistake, they learn from it. They try it again. If the Texas law is upheld, I don't think it will be. But if it is, every other state's going to do it. If it's struck down, they'll get reelected. People will figure out why was it struck down, and they'll amend it to make it stronger. They're literally operating as nonstop laboratories, always continuing this attack on democracy. Well, and then what they wrap in, too, is the culture war aspect of it, which does have an electoral outcome. And as you can probably appreciate and have had to deal with, Republicans create what we call sort of cultural grenades. They pull the pin, they throw it at Democrats. Democrats look at it, show it to you, explain it to you. And then before they have a chance to throw it back, it blows up on them. Yeah, we've had losses for that. I mean, my attitude is if they're attacking rights, you defend the rights, but you don't spend the next three weeks of your campaign only on that. Get back to saying, you know, why do we have a Democratic governor of Kansas? Because she didn't stop running ads about supporting public schools and lifting schools. She stayed on her message. I'm sure they threw everything in the book at her to try and spin her off onto other messages. She kept on that message. And they will this year again. And that's the difference, I think, David, is when it comes to putting bodies on the street, I mean, we saw a lot of good Americans take to the streets in the summer of 2020 after the death of George Floyd. I think that Trump's response to that had a lot to do with why he lost. But Republicans are willing to do it again and again and again, scare the hell out of people. And it does have an impact. The attacks on protests, the encouraging of vigilantism on these protests, it's not only they didn't like the protests, and we know that by far 98% or something were peaceful. There was tons of voter registration, other activity that came with those protests. So it's not an accident that now they're trying to crack down on those protests. But we have to be able to sort of protest for democracy, which also means showing up to vote every single year. Or if one side does, like you said, and the other side does it only occasionally, the latter side will lose. So I write the book to actually raise an alarm very loud. And my hope is when people read it, they will see that. But it is to inspire action because it's not lost. But man, is it late. They have been doing this for a long time. In Ohio, even though Biden basically decided he didn't think he needed to win Ohio, and clearly he didn't, we still focused on winning Supreme Court races knowing they would decide on the gerrymander. And we now have a balanced Supreme Court because we won three Supreme Court races in two years. And so I think we have a chance to stop the worst of gerrymandering here because of citizen action. So the point is, there's a lot to do. The book goes through a number of steps. But one is to be as smart as they are about focusing on every position that has a lever on power in the democracy, not just the ones that get us most excited. You know, some Senate candidate, you know, 
800 miles away versus a state house candidate or Supreme Court candidate or in Ohio, a state auditor candidate. You know, I ran for state auditor in 2010. No one knew what gerrymandering was then. Well, guess what? You win a state auditor and governor's race in Ohio, you control the process. Carl Rove knew all that. We weren't as smart and we're still paying the price for it. Well, listen, David, we have a lot of work to do. As you said, it's not lost, but it is late. I want to thank you for joining me today. Again, everybody, the book is called Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. David, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online? So I'm on Twitter at David Pepper, and I try and engage folks. And by the way, if you have an activist group or a book club or anything else, go to me at David Pepper at Twitter and reach out. I'd love to do Zoom meetings, book clubs. I've already got a bunch lined up, but anything we can all do to spread the word on this, I'm eager to do. This is sort of an unconventional approach to getting a book out there. I rushed it as fast as I could, but it's because we're literally at this key moment, and I worry we're too often not focused on the right things. But there's still time. Well, amen to that. Well, David, and as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. David Pepper, thanks for joining me today. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.